Ephemeral is a production of iHeartRadio. In the discipline that is ephemeral studies, the number one subject is this. Paper. Institutions like the UK's Center for Ephemeral Studies at Reading University or the Ephemeral Society of America maintain collections with no shortage of examples. Bus tickets, handbills, greeting cards, stamps, pamphlets, advertisements, and calendars past, to name a few. But not all ephemera is historical. Multitudes of papers, imbued with the hard work and creativity of their designers, are produced every day with an uncertain future. Today, the stories of two individuals working in very different but equally ephemeral uses of the printed page. What is the elevator pitch version of this? Like if, if you meet someone in a bar and they ask you what you do, what, what do you say? The, the quick pitch is that we are the world's largest collection of sketchbooks that anyone can be a part of. My name is Stephen Peterman. I'm the founder and director of the Sketchbook Project in Brooklyn Art Library. The Sketchbook Project was born out of frustration from a lack of creative outlets. There were a lot of galleries that were doing call for entries and you would pay and you were not guaranteed to be in a show. And on the other hand, there were these sort of like elite galleries that you had to apply for and maybe you got in or a few people did. Stephen and his friends wanted to put together an exhibition where the only bar for entry was a person's interest. He describes their early efforts as one-dimensional. We're just going to send out a disposable camera to 100 people, or we're going to send out a canvas to 100 people and see what happens. Everybody sees nature through different eyes. This is a couple years before, like, Kickstarter, so we were essentially crowdfunding the project but did not know what to call it. So we were like, hey, if we get all these people to do it, we can have this really cool exhibition. Six months to a year in, we, we decided to use sketchbooks, called it the Sketchbook Project, and we filled up 500 people really fast and sort of limited it to that. And then we did that for a few years, and then we're like, what happens if we just keep going? 2010 was our big peak year where we had 28,000 people sign up for the project. That allowed us to like be able to do more and hire people. And that's when we moved up to New York and opened up the uh, initial iteration of the art library, 1,200 books. Within a year, 1,200 would become 11,000. Year over year, the number of submissions would grow exponentially. At the time of this recording, we have 41,000 books from over 100 different countries. With 12 years of practice, the Sketchbook Project has their submission process down to a science. We are still crowdfunded through participation. So you buy the blank book from us, which is also your like ticket into the library. If someone's interested, they can find us online or go to one of our exhibitions and buy the blank book. It comes with instructions on how to get it back to us and how to contact us and things like that. And then uh, it also has like a list of the themes. You fill it up. Before you send it back, you then log into our website, you create an account, and you actually catalog your book. So that means you put in your name, your bio, an artist statement about your book. You put in your mediums you use, the materials you use, general key terms and tag words, really anything you want. All of that becomes searchable in our library system. When you're done, you'll stick it in an envelope and ship it to us. We then catalog them into the library system. 
your book as a barcode on the back that you originally got and you use that to connect to our account. We'll scan it and if you followed instructions properly, it prints out a barcode with your name and your city on it and your theme and everything that you chose and you get a little uh, call number in the library. We replace your old barcode with the new barcode so you have your name and everything on there and then your book's on the shelf. Initially, your book will travel with the bookmobile throughout the summer. We do different exhibitions, we do different pop-ups all over the country, and sometimes we travel international as well. And then at the end of your tour, your book will then live permanently in the Brooklyn Art Library. That whole time it's searchable by anyone. You can get email or text message notifications when someone looks at your book. So you can just be like sitting there one day and you get... It's like Stephen from Brooklyn is currently viewing your book at Brooklyn Art Library. Unlike the thousand likes you may get by sharing something on Instagram, this person's having this intimate moment with your artwork and like holding it and flipping through it. Once the book is living in the library, someone may search, you know, maybe your book was about dogs, maybe your book was about death. They see your book and it looks interesting and they hit check out. We'll pull the book off the shelf for you. You always get a random book as well, which is the book to the right of it on the shelf. Most of the time people love the random book more than the book that they searched for. The system is extremely random and we that's why we love it. People have a natural fear of like walking in and they're like, well, I don't know what to pick. And we're like, just, just embrace it. Just go with it. You don't know what you're going to get. And if you embrace the randomness, you can truly like get lost in this entire collection. Kismet is the word that comes to mind. My introduction to the sketchbook project and this conversation was equally serendipitous. The bookmobile was parked outside my office. Oh, okay. And their bookmobile, by the way. It's a 1985 Piaggio Ape. Is awesome. Wow, it's so small. You can drive it. It it goes, you know, 12 to 18 miles per hour, uh, depending on the wind speed. Oh, so you put it on like a, a flatbed or something? Actually, it fits in the van. It is it is like a little Russian doll. The touring collection contains the 1,200 or so newest submissions. The first thing you notice is how similar they all are. Everyone starts with the same thing. It's a 5 by 7 book. Like a blank one here. Uh, yeah, just it's real basic. It's staple bound. How many pages is one of these? Uh, They're 16, so 32 back and front. And the second thing you notice is how incredibly different they all are. We really like encourage people to make it their own. So she used the walnut ink, and the book is about walnut. Yeah, yeah. Very meta. Part of the challenge I feel is that you use the original book in some way. As you can see, a lot of the spines have been redone, and there's threading or or even literally just changing the type <laughs> of binding. Some people literally just take the barcode off and stick it on a new book. Yeah, so they just kept the cover, front cover and back cover, right. and then filled it with this like long folding yeah. Yeah. But I think it's really interesting to people that want to change it and find a way to change it within that format. It looks like she used the original paper. Uh, she, she might have glued, yeah, she glued some thicker paper on top, it looks okay. like. Pretty thin when it starts, but you can expand it up to an inch. Oh, so this is, it, the whole thing folds out. Yeah, so it folds out. It's like um, a single piece. It can open up to whatever you want, as long as it folds back down to that original size. That's all that we ask of you, and it is amazing what people can do with that. So he's like, 
a dude that's working doing graphic design yeah. full time using yeah. this to like blow off steam. Yeah. I mean, we could get, you know, this is where the adult content comes in here. Oh, oh yeah, but the artist says 18 plus. On that's the nice cover, that they, so. they indicated that. Yeah. The sketchbooks end up in the sketchbook a lot. Yeah, people yeah. will draw like the library or, or draw like the cover of our sketchbook or something. This is much more what I would normally think of as a sketchbook. Practicing drawing like figures, writing in like quotes from folks. Yeah. Some some uh, dried flowers. Yeah, this is the kind of sketchbook that I think I could do. This collection is a kaleidoscope because it reaches a diverse group of contributors. Anyone can participate and be creative. We have children, we have very old people, we have everywhere in between, and we have moms and dads and art students and professional illustrators and first-time artists. We have over a hundred different countries. We have every continent in the world. We have two books from Antarctica, but we're, we're not quite sure they're legit or not. But high school students or little kids come in and we're like, name any country you can think of and we'll have a book from it. We don't jury the content. We want people to share their perspective no matter what. And so other than, I would say, literally like three bad apples, every other book has been okay to be on the shelf. We have books about people who had survived cancer. We have books of like memorials of, of people. We have books about childhood abuse. This is 41,000 stories. Like it's, it's taken on its own living organism. Part of what gives this organism life and fuels the success of the project has to be the tactility of the medium itself. People love to hold the books, especially when we go to elementary schools who did not have the same childhood that we had and did not interact with physical books as much. It's so interesting to see them like touch the textures. I mean, and, and adults do that too. We do have a digital archive, but that's never been the same for us. That's like great for people that want to just share their work. It's also been 12 years, so some of the books are becoming old and showing wear. And unless the book is like truly falling apart, which then we'll contact the artists and have them fix it, we sort of just, it, it happens. It's an organic process. We moved spaces after six years, and we realized a lot of the books in the front that had been there for six years had more like fading on the side than other books and because they were near the window. I'm sure there are people who might listen to this and be like, oh, that's BS. But I think it's about this archive literally evolving. Why would we put it in like plastic bags and keep it all perfect? It's, it's all part of this living thing. I guess it is. It's just like a, a piece of somebody. Yeah. And I don't think that you'd necessarily get that with a different medium. No, you wouldn't. And we do other, you know, we still do canvas-based projects. We just did one. And, and it's fun. And it's, you know, we get a lot of awesome artwork back, but it's it's not the same. We've just have found over the years that people feel really comfortable sharing in, in a book format. It's, it's sort of universal, all ages. It's something that they can approach. I've yet to find an art-related material that I could convince someone who is not an artist to take part in it. People are constantly like, my book would be filled with stick figures. And we're like, who cares? So what? Draw a million stick figures. Like, that actually would be a pretty awesome book. I get there's people who just don't want to ever make art. But even still, like, you probably have a story to tell. A constant accumulation of ideas on paper, 
Does all of this combined achieve something that no individual work could alone? Is the whole greater than the sum of its parts? For Stephen Peterman, it depends on where you're standing. It really is depends on what direction you go into it. I mean, when you're sitting there and it's, it's anonymous and the human brain can't count how many books are sitting on the shelf around you. It all blends together. They're all the same color, basically. So it's, it's sort of just one mass. If you do the math, I think there are two million plus spreads of artwork in the collection. I don't even think a brain can hold that many images. It's tough to comprehend it, and we get 4,000 every year or so. So all the ones we have with us in our bookmobile are brand new. I've never seen any of them. And that is my favorite part of it. But if you start talking to people or you, you meet these artists who are like, I just drove here from Canada and I want to see my book and I haven't seen it in five years. We went to an artist studio in, in Brooklyn just a few months ago and she gave us a book. She had done a few other books, but then she gave us one of her books from like 2013 that she never handed in because she started it the week before Sandy hit and then her house flooded. She then finished it and it was so dark. She couldn't give it up for five years. We came to interview her, and she's like, actually, I have a surprise for you. I have this book. This woman came in the other day. She's on her second sketchbook. She was a police officer in the World Trade Centers. She survived cancer, probably from the World Trade Center. And then she also was on the Amtrak train that crashed. All of these things. And so her first book was about cancer, and now she's making a book about her Amtrak crash. She drove up from Florida. Her friend drove her up here because she, like, needed to make this pilgrimage to her book in the library and, like, see it. We went all the way to Australia once with the project, and we met this woman. We were on the other side of the world, and she was, like, 65, and she came up to us, and she's like, I want to thank you guys. I had never made art my whole entire life. I did the sketchbook project, and then I enrolled in undergrad art school in her 60s. I'm on the other side of the world, and this person is telling me how I helped them go back to school as a senior citizen. <laughs> it was so cool. Not only have we had people come in to see their book, but we're getting a lot of people that are like, can I get my book back? Like, I'm embarrassed that you have it from 10 years ago. They never knew how long we'd be around. I mean, we're just an arts organization. So just the fact that we're getting into this second decade of the project, it's become like a time capsule. I actually was doing an interview or something, and they asked me to pull my book, and it was my oldest one, and it was not embarrassing, but it's like, this is so weird. Like, this is not how I think now, and it was very, like, uh, emo. <laughs> We're starting to have this evolution where, like, we are growing as people, and the books are living in this archive. I think that's the key to the sketchbook project. Things don't proceed in a single direction. Idea, submission, archive, time capsule. Instead, works, readers, and creators exist as well-documented points inside a nebula, interacting with each other over and over in new and unpredictable ways. You can go to the High Museum, or you can go to the MoMA, and you can look at the art, and then you feel inspired, but, like, what do you do with that? Like, you just, it ends. The story ends at, at when you walk away from that painting. I mean, unless you're buying a postcard from the, from the gift shop. But in our case, our hope is that you look at this. Literally, their email is written in the back. You connect with this person who wants to connect with you. They want to be a part of a global community. 
so you could connect with them. But then also you maybe you're inspired. Maybe you then create a book, and then you inspire someone else, and it creates this full circle experience. So the inspiration, viewing, and creation never stops. There's just like an endless circle of it. And so I, I, I love creating the atmosphere that you walk out and you're like, oh, no, I'm, I can do this. Like, I'm going to go do this and then I'm going to work on it and then I'm going to send it and inspire somebody else in the process. You know, our hope is that the archive lives on forever. Like, we have no plans. We would never, like, separate the collection. Our long-term goal for it is to set up a foundation that maintains this collection. My wife and I talk about all the time, like, we have been chosen for this. We cannot do anything other than this. This is what I've spent from 20 to 33. I have worked on this project and no plans to not. There are not many people who share the profession of Matt Gaffney. Right now, let's see. There's me. There's him. There's her. Right now, there's probably six people who do it for a living. A couple hundred, maybe three or four hundred who do it as a serious hobby. And then there's people who maybe only write two or three puzzles a year, but some of them are very good. I'm Matt Gaffney, and I've been writing Crossroads professionally for, I guess this would be 20 years this year. If you do crosswords, chances are you've attempted one of Matt's. They are everywhere. The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Games Magazine, to name a few. And in my humble opinion, he writes some of the finest puzzles around. I've spent many the lazy morning or stolen moment in an illuminated corner scribbling guesses across one of his publications. But just in case you've not fallen under the spell of this incredibly addictive and popular puzzle, here are the basics. Doing the crossword? In the American version of a crossword, which is what most of your listeners will be familiar with, there are clues to words that are woven through the grid. Each letter in an American crossword is part of both an across and a downward, so you get two chances at each letter. So if you don't know the opera clue letter on the across word, you might know the you know sports clue on the down one. So you get two shots at each one. That's kind of like a courtesy of a mark of fairness to the solver that you get two shots at each letter. You need any help? The official first thing that we now acknowledge is what became the American Crossword appeared in December of 1913 by a guy named Arthur Wynne, W-Y-N-N-E. There have been some proto-crossword type things before then but he was the one who formalized it into what now is considered the first American crossword. The shape was sort of a diamond shape. The center wasn't used, but the other aspects of it were similar. Newspapers took quickly to the crossword as a way to get more eyes on the page. Newspapers, taken as a matter of course by everyone. Newspaper crosswords sort of gravitated towards being 15 by 15 for a daily size. Kind of a nice little size for something to do every day. It's like eating a three-course meal every day instead of a seven-course meal, which is a Sunday crossword. That's 21 by 21 squares, much bigger. And that's big enough that people just want to solve it once a week, generally. Alphabet, they're ABC delicious. Now with the internet eclipsing newspapers in many ways, including crosswords, you have an explosion in puzzles of other sizes. Smaller is better now as with everything else. Some people like to solve, you know, 10 by 10 crosswords because you can knock out five of them in half an hour instead of 
one puzzle in half an hour. You get that same rush five times instead of one time. For Matt, this interest started before he even knew what a crossword was. I was told by my parents that they never really taught me to read. I just started cutting letters out of magazines and books and rearranging them. So natural propensity to anagram things and look at letters and words in a strange way. When I was eight or nine, I started to solve puzzles in magazines. The mainstay of his youth was Dell Champion, a popular game magazine you can still find in the checkout counter. After a few years of solving Dell puzzles, Matt thought to himself, write one of these and I sent one in. I was 13 at the time and they didn't accept that one, but the editor, a guy named Wayne Robert Williams, took the time to write me a two-page letter back critiquing exactly why they weren't taking this puzzle and asking me to send others if I had any other ideas. So I did. Had my first puzzle published ever in the December 1986 issue of Dell Champion. So that was cool. And then it was off to the races. I loved it. Now, the trick was to turn his hobby into a full-time job. I didn't really enjoy school as much. I wasn't a great student. I had two intellectual passions as a teenager, and they were crossword puzzles and chess. So I thought I would love to be able to be a professional chess player or crossword writer for a living. I tried chess, but by age 15 or so, it was clear I was not going to be the next Bobby Fischer. So I thought, well, okay, maybe, maybe I'll be the Bobby Fischer of crosswords. And crosswords worked out better for me. I'm better at crosswords than at chess, it turns out. One of the reasons there are so few full-time crossword constructors is that, in addition to the skill set required, the business end of crosswords is, well, cutthroat. Generally, publications take submissions from hobbyists and pros alike. Large outfits like the New York Times make it 100 submissions per week. It's then the job of the editor First of all, to pick which puzzles will run when fresh, and what might need to be changed. So you've written a great puzzle, shopped it around endlessly. Maybe you've written 50 puzzles, and finally, one is accepted for publication. Payday. Except, you may have to wait until your puzzle is actually published, which can be months. 300 bucks a crossword is what the Times doles out for a daily size, and 1,000 for a 20 by 20 Sunday submission, but that's the highest end of the scale. Some pay as little as 25 or $50. There was a pecking order, you know, like in anything else, there's a hierarchy, but I started to approach it as doing something other than just freelancing, which you can't really make a living at. It's very difficult. This week on the Internet Cafe, online gaming. In the mid to late 90s, the Internet was still in its infancy then, and the software had just come out recently that would allow people to solve on screen, or it had matured to the point where it was good software. So I went and queried several hundred websites I went to Slate and said, you need a political crossword every week. And I went to PGATour.com and said, you need a golf crossword every week. And I went to Billboard Magazine and said, you need a music crossword every week. The big newspapers and magazines had their gigs and they had their solvers, but I was sort of like the little fishing boat that could get into the little cracks where the big boats couldn't find. You have to be innovative, you have to keep reinventing yourself, and you have to be entrepreneurial like in anything else. But I've been doing it for 20 years now without other sources of income. A well-constructed crossword is a thing of beauty. It's not haphazard, but balanced. Right brain, left brain. Order and artistry. 
There's three main parts to Crossword. The first one is the theme. This time, our puzzle will have some clue words in it, which will help you identify a famous landmark. That's the set of usually longer entries in the grid that have some unifying motif to them. Hopefully something clever. Now, there are some themeless crosswords or freestyle crosswords that don't have the theme at all, but most crosswords do have the theme. The theme is sort of like the reason for existing of the crossword. It's the soul of the crossword. It's what makes it unique. I kind of go around with my theme antenna on low-level alert. I'm always on the lookout for interesting 9, 10, 15-letter words or phrases. If, if I hear one on the TV show or somebody says something, I'll think, oh, I wonder if I can make a theme from that. It's a weird, I don't know if you can call it a talent, but it's a weird predilection. But crossword writers, we all tend to do that. So then once you come up with the theme, you try to get the best possible set of entries for that theme. You don't want to miss any good ones. You don't want to have somebody come later and say, oh, this was really good, but for this one, you should use this instead. And you say, oh, I just didn't think of that. So you really want to put the time in. Let's see. Interests. The late Merle Regal, who many consider the greatest American crossword writer of all time, called that cooking the theme. So you want to cook your theme. Second part is to make the grid. Crosswords have what's called 180-degree rotational symmetry, which means that if you turn the grid upside down, the black square pattern will remain the same. That just came about for aesthetic reasons. There's no actual solving reason why you have to have it that way, but that's the standard now. It's like you put the longest beams in a building in first and then fill in everything around that. It's the same with the crossword. You put the longest entries in first and then put the what we call the fill, the shorter entries around it. You don't want to have a duplication in the grid, so if you have, you know, oven at one across, you don't want to have ovens in 18 down or something. And you want to maximize your fill, too. You're going to need some crossword standby words like ARIA and ERA, E-R-A, which is the most common entry in all of crosswords by a wide margin. Three letters. Period of time. ERA. ERA is correct. Just because it's three letters long, which is the shortest an entry can be in a standard crossword, and it's got all good letters and two vowels. So you're going to have a bunch of those, but you also want to have some fun stuff, too, that has high-value letters in Scrabble in it, like kazoo. You want to have stuff that's contemporary. Somebody had Cardi B in a crossword the other day, so you want to have stuff like that just to show the solver that the crossword was not written 30 years ago. And then the third part, once you're happy with the fill, then you want to clue it. Six-letter word, a city where the squares have fun on the common. And the clues, well, you want to maximize those, too. You want to decide what difficulty level it's going to be. Eight-letter word, one of the biggest defeats of all time. You could have a grid with very simple words that any sixth grader would know every single word in this grid, but you could make it a beyond expert level solve just by making the clues difficult. Four-letter word, Yes. the color of Jack Benny's eyes. A clue that's a pun or that's a clever play on words. That's generally appreciated. Seven-letter word, if you have a lot of this on the ball, you can be a good pool player. Then you edit it and send it to whoever has agreed to pay you for it, and then it's done. By the early aughts, the genre felt like it was at a standstill. What I call a theme crisis in American crosswords. Let's say there's a mountain that had a bunch of gold and everybody went there and for decades they were picking at the mountain. After 60 or 70 years, it started to get kind of picked over. And you'd still have the occasional nice find in there, but it was tougher and tougher, and it wasn't like it used to be. 
There was a quote from Oscar Wilde. I think I'm getting it verbatim. It said, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. Okay, so that's kind of an amazing quote. That's why I say this person. But the reason it's appeared in so many crosses is because it's 45 letters long, and they cleave 15, 15, 15. To love oneself is, is 15. The beginning of a is 15. Lifelong romance is 15. And it also cleaves perfectly syntactically. To love oneself is, second line across the middle of the grid, the beginning of a, and then you have to see what the third one is because you just know beginning of a, lifelong romance. That quote is perfect. It's like it was written to appear in a crossword. So it's been used in probably a dozen crosswords. I know it's been appeared in the New York Times at least three times over the decades. And there's others too, like Ernest Hemingway was really kind. His name is 15 letters. The sun also rises in 15 letters. And a farewell to arms, 15 letters, perfect. It's appeared in so many crossword themes. Another one is the United States, Independence Day, and the 4th of July, all 15 letters. And it's not just those. Those are basic ones, but even more complex themes have become used and seen before. And it was a bit frustrating, actually, because you would come up with a theme and then check online to see if somebody had done it, and somebody had often done it. It was kind of annoying. Now, I should say, you can still find nice themes, and people have expanded theming in other ways, but I was sort of the guy who said, okay, this mountain of gold used to be great, but it's picked over. What about that mountain over there, though? Has anybody tried that mountain? So contest crosswords for me were that mountain, was that mountain over there. Contest crosswords for Matt upped the ante on the whole affair. I'm mostly known for those now, or that's what I'm become known for. I wanted to find something that would really give crosswords a boost, take it in a different direction. And what I came up with was actually not an idea that I created, but I just remembered it from my youth when I used to solve Dell Champion crossword puzzles, this certain type of puzzle where it wasn't just a crossword where you are given the grid and the clues, and when you fill in the last letter, you're done. In a contest crossword, an additional puzzle lurks somewhere on the page, often one you can't even attempt to solve until you've successfully completed the grid. Along with the grid, you also got a set of instructions telling you you were looking for a specific thing, like the answer to this contest is a world capital or a Hitchcock movie, something specific like that, or an eight-letter word starting with B or whatever. You solve the puzzle, and then after you're done, you have to find that Hitchcock movie or world capital or whatever, and it's hidden somewhere using some unique mechanism. It's hidden in the grid or the clues or both. So it's like a little treasure hunt. And some of them are very simple, but they can also get hellishly complex, where it can take even the best solvers days to finally get the answer. They've really rejuvenated crosswords in a way, I would say. Now, other constructors have started writing these contest crosswords as well. Big places like the Wall Street Journal publishes one every Friday. I write it every other Friday, and they're very fun to write as well as to solve. 21 across. 21 across. Mm -hmm. A five-letter word. You can lose a lot of money on one of these. Why has this 100-year-old word game proven a resilient form of entertainment? Because crosswords evolve alongside the languages and cultures of which they are a part.
crossword that right now would be considered too niche or too uh, millennial-oriented or too strange or something full of like slang that nobody over 35 has ever heard of wouldn't be as likely to be published if they had to go through you know, some old editor like me, some old gatekeeper or people older than me who just says, I don't know any of this stuff. It's not going in there because now they can publish online. There's other crossword specific publications that cater to them and they've built their own fan bases. So it's proven to be a flexible form of entertainment. And I would say it is well, certainly not decreasing in popularity. I would say it's actually going up. Do you just sit down and do crosswords, too, that aren't your crosswords? You know, I solve uh, very selectively. Usually it's to test solve a puzzle for a friend. And the other one of three times will be if some real A-list name comes up and I don't want to miss this one. Or if a certain crossword has gotten a lot of buzz online as it's come out, I'll say, okay, let me print this out and see what's going on. I read a website called Diary of a Crosser Feed every day that reviews five or six puzzles a day, New York Times, Universal, Newsday, Wall Street Journal, all the big ones, plus a lot of the independent crosswords. So I'm, I'm in touch with almost every major crossword that's published. I've, I've at least laid eyes on it if I haven't solved it. Despite this tight-knit community, for Matt Gaffney, the experience on the other end of the crossword can be elusive. For puzzle constructors, like many types of writers, there's a fundamental disconnect between you and your audience. I don't often get to see crosswords in the wild. You know, sometimes I'll stumble upon somebody in a bar or on a train or something, and they'll be solving one of my crosswords. But crosswords, writing them is solitary, solving them is generally solitary. At parties or in social events is where I get to hear people's actual solving experiences, and also what they like and what they look for in a crossword. I tend to view the crossword as art. They tend to view it as entertainment. They're solving it for 15, 20, 30 minutes of pleasure, enjoyment, fun, pass the time, whatever. I understand that it's an experience for people like that, but I'm also looking at it to be as artistically interesting as possible. And some of that translates over. You can enjoy beer, but you're not going to know as much as the brewer does. And there are certain things you won't even care about that the brewer puts lots of time and effort into making sure are, to him, good. But to you, you might not even know. So take a single crossword puzzle. All those puns, tricky hints, wordplay, and the hard-fought battles in every square. And multiply that by one a day for 20 years. How much of that can be saved? We have these busy lives and we go around and we wonder what's going to last and what can our brains even hold. So you do have this nostalgic sense that life is fleeting. None of us are permanent. You know, you have that sort of look when you see this flowing river of crosswords pushing by. And then sometimes you have reason to go back and look at one from eight or ten years ago. And you say, even if it's one I wrote, I sometimes I won't even remember it. I'll say, oh, I swear that I wrote this. It makes sense. It sounds like something I would have done, but I don't even remember it. To a crossword solver, the crossword may very well be ephemera, just a way to pleasantly pass 20 minutes and then they never have to think about it again. Either way of looking at it as art or as entertainment is fine with me. Let me ask you this. Is it is it still a fun gig 20 years plus later? It's an incredible job, and I'm going to be doing this as long as I am able.
Ephemeralist, written and assembled by Williams, and produced by Annie Reese, Matt Frederick, and Tristan McNeil. Production assistance this episode from Trevor Young, and additional mixing from Josh Thane, with technical assistance from Sherry Larson. Matt Gaffney is the author of Gridlock, Crossword Puzzles, and the Mad Geniuses Who Create Them. You can find links to puzzles, books, and a fabulous online crossword contest at mattgaffney.com. And to submit your own sketchbook and join the global community, visit sketchbookproject.com. If you're lucky enough to be in New York, go and visit the Brooklyn Art Library in Williamsburg. Somewhere in that nebula of books is a new submission from yours truly. Just search for the keyword ephemeral. And for more from this archive, search no further than ephemeral.show. Next time on Ephemeral. It was a very high-paced, very stressful job. Words are coming in your ear, you're talking to somebody else, you're checking the wires to make sure that other people have completed their calls. You're also making notes about how long the call lasted because you're going to charge the customer based on how long the call lasted, note where the call went to, and you're doing this with a board of 50 calls that are coming in all at the same time. The Army did have to use men sometimes, and they found that it took the average infantryman 60 seconds to complete a call. It took the average woman 10 seconds. So in wartime, the difference between 60 seconds and 10 seconds is the difference between living or getting your head blown off. Visit us on the World Wide Web and interact with us on social media at the Femoral Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.